1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue. We're going to talk about the church, the church, not necessarily Grace Church, even though we're obviously a church and part of the church, but we're going to talk about the church this morning as we, uh, as we uh, look at this uh, counter notes, about 14th message uh, in 1 Thessalonians that we have uh, been in for a little time, and you can go back online and look at those, or listen to those rather, and I guess you can look at them on, on YouTube for those that uh, the streaming is recorded on there. But the church is a blessed institution, if you will, by God. It has been blessed by God. And we refer to the church, we're referring to the corporate body of Jesus, the church at large, those who uh, believe the, the truth of who Jesus is, believe the truth of his identity and all those great pillars of truth. Not everybody that calls themselves a church is a church, and I hope that you're aware of that. The church of Scientology is not a church. Do we have any misunderstanding on that, okay? So I'm not talking about just anybody that labels itself as a church, but uh, believers who've embraced Jesus as, as Lord and Savior, believe the Word, believe those foundational historical truths that are composed of the church body. And that's not only just corporate at large, but it also composes of the local church of which we're a part of. We're, you're a part of the wider body of believers, but you're also a part of Grace Church if you attend here or wherever your home church is. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. It is an uh, institution that Jesus is, has built and is building himself, of which he, the Bible says that he gave himself for the church. And so when we talk about the church, it's easy for us to get sidetracked in thinking about uh, buildings and denominations and names and ex those type of things, but the church is you among us, the people, the body. We don't, you know, Grace Church, really a more doctrinally accurate sign would be is that Grace Church meets here. The building is not Grace Church. You're Grace Church. Grace Church meets in this building. This building uh, is a blessing for those who have given and provided this building and property through the years, almost about 30 years now, that Grace Church has been here from a church plant, and we're thankful that those who preceded us uh, were diligent stewards, that we're here, and we don't have debt, we don't have a mortgage, everything's paid for, uh, and that's a blessing, and that helped us a great deal uh, in these last few years and not be saddled with a huge mortgage and a debt. So we're thankful for that. But Grace Church, again, is part of the wider body. And, of course, people have different ideas when they think of church. And, unfortunately, in our day and time, the church, and maybe rightly so, takes a lot of knocks, maybe at its own, because of its own fault, people who identify themselves as part of the church or leaders that are not living lives that are consistent with what they say or preach or churches that align themselves with things that are not true, that are false. And so one of the things that while the church is significant, and even Paul said the church is the pillar 
of truth. Uh, the church is not perfect. Say, I know that. I'm a member of Grace Church. I know that. I always, you know, would tell people, I said, you know, if you are perfect, you will not be comfortable at Grace Church because we are composed of imperfect people who live and have been saved by grace. But the wonderful descriptions of the church as the powerful institution of Christ and the body of Christ we know are tempered because the church is still composed of people that are still battling sin, still battling sin. Uh, Some members of the body of Christ, uh, the church, are spiritually immature, still growing, you know, and some even by attending or even as members might even not even be regenerate or saved. Just because your name is on a church roll, that does not necessarily mean really anything as far as your own spiritual uh, stand and health before God. So the church uh, is composed of a lot of different factors, but if we are going to continue as a local church, and even I would say as a wider church to be blessed by God, it's only going to be a blessing, we're only going to be blessed by God as we recognize and confront our own weaknesses, our, our imperfections, our sins, our difficulties, uh, that only Jesus Christ can heal and remedy. We are a body in process. We are growing in grace. And as we come to First Thessalonians today, uh, we're going to talk about some relationships within the body. And so I invite you to uh, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and the title of today's message is Living and Loving as God's Family. Living and Loving as God's Family. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to use those. I might say something crazy, and you want to make sure that you check me out and correct me uh, and uh, say, that's not, in the, that's not in the Bible. Well, if you don't have your Bible, you wouldn't know that. But uh, for your convenience, uh, it will also be on the screen. But we're going to read verses 12 through 14, and God, may God's blessing. Actually, we're going to read uh, 12 through 15, and uh, may God's blessing be upon the reading of His Word. People want to hear God speak? Well, you're getting ready to hear God speak. And I don't mean me. I mean, when the word is read, we're hearing the literal word of the Lord. Are you with me? All right, here we go. Verse 12, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray before we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, how we are grateful for the word of the Lord today to bring us counsel, admonishment, to bring us correction. Lord, to give us words as a church body, Lord, that we can be better examples uh, to glorify you, that we are ambassadors of Christ. May we as a church exemplify and model 
being a Jesus church, a church that uh, walks our talk. Lord, help us as we look at the word and hear or these words that were given by your uh, apostle, the apostle Paul, uh, to this local church in Thessalonica. But yet, I pray that as we hear these words, they're words to us today, or this local church, as though Paul was writing specifically to Grace Church, and help us to hear his words of encouragement and instruction this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to an actual local church. A local church that, of course, we've talked about this for 14 weeks numerously, but the church was founded by the Apostle Paul and some of his companions, and you can make note of that or read about that beginning in Acts chapter 17 in the first uh, uh, nine verses there where you see the founding of this church at Thessalonica. And right away, as the Apostle Paul began to minister the truth of God's Word, there was opposition. That usually uh, goes hand in hand. There was opposition. There were those who opposed the message. There were those who opposed Christians. And certainly it reached uh, a point that it uh, precipitated the Apostle Paul uh, from having to get out of town, get out of Dodge, if you will, uh, because of the intensity of the persecution. But in God's providence, God had birthed and established this local church. And what I think is so cool about it, it wasn't built around Paul's personality. It thrived even though he wasn't there. It thrived. So even though he was there for a short time, it was a church that had all the spirit-filled ingredients uh, of, of the truth and uh, what time he did have there. And more importantly, it had regenerate, saved people that composed the church. You can't have a church if you don't have that. It's not a church. But they had all those factors that a few years later, when uh, Paul was at a place that he wanted to find out, he couldn't get back to visit them because of the persecution, so he sent Timothy, his protege. And Timothy came back with a report uh, telling them that the church was doing well, and that is what uh, Paul is responding to, is the news that Timothy brought back, and thus, that's where we get First Thessalonians. He's responding to the news that Timothy brought back of how the church was doing, and as we have seen as we walked along, there's some questions and some areas of concern that this young church has uh, concerning some various issues, and we've talked about that in the past 14 weeks. But as he is drawing close to the end of his letter, Paul is continuing to give this young church, and by virtue of the written word and the page, he gives us instruction as well, uh, gives us some guidance and gives us some uh, teaching, some pastoral wisdom remotely. Remember, he's not with them. He's in Corinth when he writes this. But Paul makes a pivot from issues that he talked about at the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 about the second coming of Christ. What about our loved ones who have died? Uh, will they miss the second coming? All those things that are of great concern. So again, he pivots now as he's kind of winding down his letter that he writes. 
And thus, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 of some essential teachings and truths concerning how they are to function and operate as God's church, how they are to function as the community of Jesus. Now remember, like Grace Church and most churches, we are composed of a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, In many ways, we're kind of a hodgepodge, right? That's what a good, healthy church is. Now, there are those, you know, in church planting that's have kind of built things around a, a, a kind of a, a kind of a marketing approach that if you want to uh, plant a successful church, you go into an area and you want to start a church that's composed. You say, okay, who? Kind of like marketing, you know, like your marketing soap. Who's your audience? Who are you going after? Well, we're going after twenties to thirties. So you start a church and everything you do is kind of geared to that group because you want to you want to market your church to that group and uh, grow a church. And, and, you know, there's some good, bad, and difference, but I don't, I don't necessarily see that as the method that God uses, because when you read anywhere in the New Testament letters where it's addressing a church, you've got everybody in there. You've got Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, blue-collar, white-collar, ring-around-the-collar. You've got it all in the church. And that is a testimony of God's grace that our commonality isn't that we all have the same economic standing. We don't like all the same football teams. We may not all use the, the same uh, uh, like of music or whatever the case, but our connection, our commonality is that all ground is level at the foot of the cross. We come as needy sojourners needing the grace of God and we come and we only bring, the only thing we bring God is our sin to receive the good news of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to this church and giving them some real practical instruction, uh, again, of how they are to live out the gospel. You know, it's one thing, and, and it's a premium for churches to be, to be, to believe, rather, right things. But it's also important for us to live rightly, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't do Christ any good for us to be, have our, all our doctrinal T's crossed and our I's dotted if we are not living out the truth that we profess. And let's be honest with you. Uh, the outside world uh, is pretty unimpressed by the church in America today. They're not overly impressed. But we want to, them to not be impressed, and I, as I've said at different times, don't be impressed with Grace Church. Don't be impressed with anything about Grace Church. Be impressed with what a wonderful Savior Jesus is. If you leave here impressed by anything other than Jesus, then we have failed in that mission. We want you to be impressed and what a wonderful Savior Jesus is. But Jesus is expressed not only in what we believe, what we confess, but it's also the uh, Jesus is expressed in how we live among each other and how we are living in a fallen world. So Paul gives some attention there. And in this passage this morning, he addresses three different categories of people, some practical advice uh, to each group, giving them some godly counsel and 
We're going to hear these words to the church at Thessalonica, but also these are words that we benefit by from the apostle to the church called Grace Church in Lakeland. Notice with me the first group in verse 12, and it has to do with relationships, and it's the believer's relationship to church leaders. That's in verse 12 through 13. In verse 12, he says, we ask you, brothers, and the NIV and other translations may include sisters there. It's not, he's not just addressing men, but in this case, he's addressing the church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So as Paul is addressing the church family, he is addressing uh, the congregation and how they should respond to their pastors. And you could, in one sense, include leaders in a general sense, but I think in, the, in, the, in a narrow sense, he's talking about how they should respond to the elders, to the pastors, to the shepherds of the church, because there's some different things specifically that elders and shepherds do. It's, Paul doesn't get into right away. He's not talking about, I want you to uh, do this because of their titles, or qualifications, but he mentions that you should have a, uh, a respect, if you will, because of the roles that elders and pastors play. They're, what they do, that is how you should respect them. And he says he asked them, or uh, your version might say urge the new King James, but it's kind of a, he's not, he's not kind of just being harsh, but he's kind of a, a general uh, a gentle nudging of saying, look, here's some admonition of some things that, that you need to do. I'm asking you to do this. And so he, he says about, first of all, is that I'm asking you to respect them. The New American Standard says appreciate. NIV says acknowledge. The New Living Translation uses the word honor. The basic idea is that you are, as the flock, as the congregation, are to cultivate a relationship to the elders, to the leaders, the pastors, the shepherds, the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, I, I think, has the most literal in this sense, where it says, uh, you are to know your shepherds. And that isn't just, you need to know their names, that's helpful, but you need to know them in the sense that you're familiar with them in a relational sense. You, you know them, you know how, you know their way of life, you know you've been around them. And the only way you can get to know leaders and people in the church is, here's a little tip, you got to come to church. That's a freebie, all right? That's a freebie. Are y'all, do we need to sing again? Do we need to do the, the hokey pokey or something, all right? All right, everybody good? All right. So, uh, so you need, to, you need to be a part, and that's why we say there's the, uh, Grace Church, we celebrate Jesus on Sunday morning, but also Grace Church is we want you to connect, and connecting with one another, and connecting with the leaders uh, in the church, and in this case, again, the, the shepherds, you need to know them. Paul said in, uh, and it's not on the screen, verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, because our gospel came to you not in word, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And he says at the end of verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, you know, you know what kind of men we are, what we prove to be among you for your sake. So the recognition isn't just a recognition or a respect because of a title, 
Okay, listen to me. It's not because of a title, but it's because it is an earned respect based on their function and what they do. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, we're studying Hebrews on Wednesday night. The writer of Hebrews uh, chapter will uh, be in much later than we are right now. But look at Hebrews 13 verse 7. It uh, gives us some, uh, uh, some help here uh, that it's based on their reputation. Remember your leaders, those who spoke, spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life. And he says to imitate their faith. So it encourages you to know and have a, it implies a relationship between the shepherds and the congregation. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will get, have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I'll just leave that there. For that would be of no advantage to you. All right, I didn't say anything. And notice what Paul, right here in this verse, you say, well, why should we do that? Why should we, why, why, what, give, me, give me some good, re- give me a good reason. Well, I'll give you three good reasons that Paul gives in verse 12. Notice, first of all, you're to respect them because of their work. Verse 12, you're to respect them because of their work. It says, recognize, respect those who, first of all, labor among you. The labor. Their ministry is validated by their labor, by their work among the people. They are not just a title on a board. I've known of some churches that have a leadership board, and some of the leaders on the board don't even come to church. They may live in another state. I don't know how that works. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about leaders that are acquainted, that you can observe their faithfulness to the body. Respect them because of their work. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, where we've already covered, he said, For remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked night and day. So they were aware of the labor that Paul had given them. And he says that they labor among you. They're observable. The elders are, you can, you can see them because they're a part of the body. Another reason why you should respect your leaders is not only because of their work, but because of their watch. Pastors were to be over you. Literally, it means to stand before, which means to have charge like a presiding official. Uh, in, our, in our free spirit in America, we kind of buckle at leaders instructing us or even in telling us what to do or not to do. I mean, the whole controversy that's been going on for three years isn't so much the issue per se, it's just that somehow Americans just kind of get rankled when we're told we got to do something, right? We just get a little aggravated over being told that we have to do something. Even just that, sir, you need to stand in that line. There's something in your flesh like, I don't want to stand in that line. I want to stand right here. That's just our unsanctified self coming. 
But he's talking about spiritual leadership. But don't, don't miss this in the verse. It says they are over you. That's their watch. We read that in Hebrews 13 about they have a responsibility to care and watch over your souls. But notice it says you are over you in the Lord. This isn't just, you know, admiring somebody because they've just got a type A personality in the church. But their authority is only as good as it is in the Lord. My authority in standing before you preaching or teaching is only as good as it is in the Word of the Lord. That's the authority. I don't have any authority in of myself. Because a congregation responds out of respect because they, they see that in their life. A pastor, it's always got to remind them of who's in charge or an elder who's in charge. Guess what? Really has an artificial uh, relationship and authority. Because there's a natural, when you are uh, and, uh, and, uh, respecting those who serve you and care for you, uh, you're, you're, you're not bothered when they, when, they, when they gently nudge you to say, hey, here's maybe something you ought to consider. Here's some, here's some counsel. And that leads to the third thing as far as why we should respect them, not just because of their work, not just because of their oversight, their watch, but because of their wisdom. Their wisdom. It says that recognizing and respecting leaders are those who admonish you. Admonish you. That's correction. That's the funnest part about leading. It's not. It's not. (laughs) But yet, it is a responsibility often that elders, pastors have to bring as part of their responsibility. The Bible says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. One of the most discouraging things is when somebody in the church, which has happened, and it will happen again, when somebody makes a particular decision and they haven't sought the spiritual counsel. Again, this is not a cult. You're free to do whatever you want. I mean, you can go and make your choices. But if you're part of a church body and you recognize and respect leaders you, and you are spiritually desirous to follow the will of the Lord, there are times in which even myself, that's I'm thankful for uh, that we have two elders, that as a team, that, that we can share and iron sharpens iron. But you as a person having to make a weighty decision or, or something that's going to affect your life and somebody else's life or whatever it is, you should seek wisdom from people that, have a, that, that care about your spiritual life. But one of the most discouraging things is when somebody comes to you and they say, Pastor, I just want you to know I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to leave my wife or I'm going to pursue this. And you know, I'm not talking about I want to buy a Ford or a Nissan. I don't care. Don't ask me. All right? Ask Doug. He, he's the, he knows all about that. Um, but, but decisions in which there is weight of Scripture that this is the wrong way, but you're going to come and say, kind of the linchpin is always, well, I've already prayed about it, and God told me. You know what I've, over the years I do? I'm like, well, you don't need me then. I mean, if God told you, Who am I 
right? And I doubt God ever told them any such nonsense of what they're saying. But they want to justify, and they are, they are a fool because they despise wisdom. And here's the other reality, is sometimes people want to seek wisdom from an elder, a pastoral counsel, but they're not really ready to hear what you have to say. In fact, they think you're going to say one thing, and you say something completely different, and they're really not sure they want to do that. They're like, well, I want your wisdom as long as it validates what I think. But if you say something contrary or something that's different, well, I'll just go find me another church where somebody will kind of validate what I want them to tell me. That's, the Bible says there are those that in the last days that will seek after people that, you know, they have itching ears and they want to tell them uh, things that make them happy and comfortable. Well, sometimes there's, in wisdom, there are truths that make you and make me uncomfortable. They don't, they don't, they don't uh, pad my self-centeredness. And there are times as leaders and as elders, there's counsel that may say, here's, here's, here's a better way. Here's a scriptural way. Here's direction. There, there's happiness in life if you, if, you, if you hear this counsel. And sometimes it's sad when people refuse that. Paul said in Acts 20, 31, he told the elders at Ephesus to be on alert, remembering, reminding them that for three years, listen to this, he said, I did not cease night or day to admonish, you could say correct, everyone with tears. This wasn't some macho slice and dice authority. Paul says, for three years, with tears, I was putting my heart out there, giving you wisdom and direction. So we're to respect our leaders. We're still talking about the relationship of church leaders, but he also says something in verse 13 where he says, esteem your leaders. Verse 13, not only respect, acknowledge, but to esteem them, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul now says that the second responsibility that the congregation has to this first group that he's talking about in the body, the church leaders, is they are to respect those who labor among them in the spiritual work of the church, but it says they are to esteem them, and it says esteem them very highly. How do you esteem somebody? Well, it isn't that you give the pastor a parking space in the front of the church. That is supposed to be a joke. Y'all are really making me work today. Listen, I tell... Listen, if you're really pastoring that church, you should be there pretty much before most people, and you'll be one of the last to leave. You won't have to worry about a parking space, okay? If that's your thing, if that's your thing, you need to roll in with a parking spot and be entouraged in, then I don't know what that's about. But anyway, all right? But this is, you know, a little hard because it almost sounds self, uh, you know, because you're like, man, I, I don't want to sound like I'm twisting things just to make me look... Uh, to promote me, but literally, literally, it says that this is to be done very highly, and it means, that phrase very highly means 
abundant to the point of being excessive that you're to esteem. So we're going to take an offering now, and I'm going to give you a chance to demonstrate this. No, we're not going to do that. But notice what it says. Here's the key. Esteem them very highly in love. In love. What does that imply? It goes back to implying there's a relationship, right? See, this isn't the, 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 the structure of church leadership isn't top-down, it's one among the flock. I'm going to say that again. Some of you were thinking about lunch. The structure of church leadership isn't the way that uh, some have modeled it off of the corporate world where you've got a CEO and you've got all this structure. It's not a top-down, it's one among the people. What differentiates us? That we have less sin than you do? No. It's gifts in the body. It's a gifting of recognizing the way that God has gifted certain people to do certain things. And we acknowledge and we respect that. The way that God has so organized the body. Recognizing that we need each other. And Paul talks about that in other places in 1 Corinthians. But it says that we esteem them not because of their personality, but because of their work. The elders, the pastors, carry out the ordained responsibilities in the church. Well, what's the benefit of the church? Look at what it says at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. When a church has this type of relationship to its leadership, and the leaders have this relationship to its people, guess what? There is peace in the church. I've been in church stuff a long time. And some of the most dysfunctional church situations have been a result of dysfunctional leaders in the church. And thus, you have dysfunctional leaders, and what do they produce? Dysfunctional sheep. And you got a mess. And is there anything, is there peace in that kind of situation? No. There's not peace. Listen, we don't do drama at Grace Church. We don't want drama. And I'm not talking about plays or whatever. I'm just saying that we, we want people to be happy in Jesus. We want people to get along. We don't like strife and tension. We want leaders to love the flock, and we want the flock to love their leaders. Does that mean our leaders are perfect? Nope. But we're walking the same path of the cross as you. God appointed leaders in the church, and he says believers have a relationship to respect and esteem their leaders. Now, I was just thinking about this. Think about This is a young congregation. Maybe, maybe a few years old, if that. Where did these leaders come from? Did they go online and, and get some seminary grants? These were all a bunch, of un, a bunch of former pagans that were now converted and were part of the young church, and they were young spiritually themselves. Do you think, and I even see this in every church I've been in that raises up and selects elders and deacons or whatever, and there are some that's like, well, I'm not going to listen to what so-and-so says, because I know so-and-so, and he's not any better than me. Nobody's saying anybody's better than you. 
All we're recognizing is somebody has gifted somebody differently than you. Imagine these guys that a few years ago, they were out running around doing whatever it is pagans and idolaters were doing, and now you're going to stand in spiritual authority over me. Do you think that would create a little issues and problems in that church? It'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? But Paul says, don't esteem them and respect them because they're perfect. No, esteem them and respect them because they are God-ordained men that God has given to the church to labor and care for your souls. And there's something that every church needs to be reminded of that. But there's a second relationship he addresses, and that's the believer's relationship to one another. In verse 14, in verse 14, he says, And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, I-D-L-E, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. He goes now from how we are to relate to those that God has placed in spiritual authority within the church, but he also gives some instruction of how the body is to relate with one another. And not just with anybody, but let's say that these people that are mentioned here are people that might be a little extra challenging people. You see, if everybody was perfect like you, you would never have any strife or problems in the church, would you? We'd all get along. It'd all be great. But here's a newsflash. Not everybody's perfect like you. Now, some of you believe that. Some of you aren't sure. That's what's so beautiful about the church in this sanctifying hodgepodge that we're all involved in, working and growing in grace. Look at some of these folks. Look at some of these folks. He says, admonish the idle, I-D-L-E. New Living Translation says the lazy. One version says the undisciplined. Your version, whether it's uh, New King James or New American Standard, might say, and I think this probably is closer to, is unruly. They're unruly. What do we mean by that? The unruly were those who lived. They were, now, don't miss this. They were part of the church. Paul still recognized them as, as, as part of the, the congregation. But the unruly were those who were literally out of step, out of sync, with the rest of the church and the body. They, they disregarded God's instruction. They disregarded God's direction and the leadership on, on living. They were, they, were, they were just out of sync with the direction of the church. But yet, he still puts them in the fold. That's important. You know why that's important? Because that means you can't write anybody off. Hello? Even the ones, should I say it, got to be careful. Even the ones that need that little extra attention. And you'll say the same thing over and over again. You say, well, I don't know. I've said it at least 50 times. Well, guess what? Maybe they'll hear you 50 on the 51st. You never know. Keep at it. Keep going at it. But he says, look, I'm not saying you just write them off. He says, look, I'm telling you to admonish them. That, and, and again, this is not something he's just exclusively giving to elders and leaders, pastors in the church. I think, because how does he say, how does he look back at verse 14? 
He said, and we urge you brothers. He's, he's saying this is something the entire congregation should take on as responsibility in ministering and caring for those that you could say are on the fringe. They were to be warned. They were to be admonished, even corrected to change their behavior. Admonishing a disobedient brother or sister is the ministry we all want to avoid. It's, it's, that's what we pay that guy to do. We don't want to do that. Sandy's not here. She's with, is she with the kids, I guess? But I remember one situation. I'd been here, I don't even know if a year. And some of you don't know Don Corder, Sandy's husband, who's with the Lord, but he was one of our elders. I remember on a Sunday morning, I won't go into the particulars, but one Sunday morning, he came into my office and presented an issue that needed to be addressed. And I said, well, Don, you know this person better than I do. And I was like, hey, brother, that's what being an elder is. You know, I'm like, and Don was like, well, I don't really know them that well. I said, Don, you've been here 10 more years than I have. You know them better. You know, I'm like, and he's just looking at me. I realized he don't want to do this. And I laughed. I said, well, I guess that's why they pay me the big bucks. And, and it was just something we had to address. But it's not a fun job, you know. Especially when you know that person is not going to receive what you do or what you say. And you're not going to be their best friend. They might defriend you on Facebook. The ultimate, the ultimate punishment, right? But let me make sure we understand each other on this. This is not admonishing or correcting somebody to your preferences. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not admonishing somebody to your preference uh, or secondary issues. Okay? We're talking about things that are sinful actions and behavior that the Word of God clearly and clearly and distinctly mentions. I'll give you an example. Look in your Bibles. To 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll give you an example. Paul, and we'll get into this as we get into 2 Thessalonians, but it is worth mentioning now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul did this and admonished those who refused to work. Hello? Refused to work. They like getting that. I don't know if they got any government freebies, but they didn't want to work. And listen to what he says. He's going to admonish them in the church. These are folks in the church. He wasn't writing a guest article to the Athens Gazette. He was writing to the church. And he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he said, now we command you, brothers, okay, they're brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother, okay, he's called a brother, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because, verse 9, we do not have the right Paul's saying, I could flash my apostolic badge, but that's not why, what we're doing. It's not because we have the right, do not have the right, but to give you 
in ourselves an example to imitate. We want our lives. We want you to see the grace in our lives. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone, here's the command, here's the admonishment, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Boy, that would be a social radicalization, wouldn't it? For we hear, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, laziness, not busy at work, but oh, but busy bodies. We know what that is. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do, what, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do you see that distinction there? You don't treat him as an unregenerate enemy. You're not, you're not talking about that. But, but even brothers, even brothers and sisters, guess what? With me at the head of the class, need correction and admonishment. Notice that in, the, uh, in this verse, not only do you admonish the lazy or the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. That literally means small-souled. Small-souled. A person, he says, how are we to treat one another? Admonish the unruly, the lazy, the fringe, but encourage the faint-hearted. These are people who are easily discouraged or overwhelmed by stress, by issues, discouraged by trials, encourage them. Uh, those who are anxious, nervous, timid in their faith. Sometimes by encouraging them, it doesn't mean we have to give them a sermon. Sometimes it might be that we just give them ourselves. Joseph Bailey, who is an author who's in heaven, and he himself lost three sons in death, wrote in the book, The Last Thing We Talk About, made this observation that I thought was helpful here. Joseph Bailey says, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened, and when I said something, answered briefly, prayed, and simply left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You see, sometimes what we need to do is just to come alongside of somebody and encourage the faint-hearted. He also says that as we relate to one another, we need to help the weak. Help the weak. This is not just talking about those that are perhaps uh, physically, uh, maybe with sickness or something, but spiritually weak. And it literally, if we were to read it literally, it literally 
when it says help the weak, you could translate it this way. It literally could read, hold on to and don't let them go. Wow. Hold on to them and don't let them go. That's how you help the weak. Where? The weak in the body of Christ. And there may be seasons in which a strong person might go through a season that now they are now among the weak because of some tragedy, some situation. How is the body to respond to them? You hold on to them and don't let them go because what happens when we tend to be weak in the faith? Guess what? We want to isolate ourselves. We want to pull back. We want to pull away. And that's when the body needs to say, hey, I'm not going to let you go. I don't care what you say, what you do. I'm not going to let you go. We're going to walk through this together. And that's where older Christians come alongside younger believers. Paul would write in Romans 15, verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. He gives another reason here is that we are to be patient with everyone, to be long-tempered, long-suffering. Aren't you glad God is, was patient with you and long-suffering with you? That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance And Colossians, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It's so helpful here. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13. It'll be on the screen. This is from the New Living Translation. Talking about patient with everyone. Not just people you like. Patient with everyone. Since God shows you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. What a church if we would take those to practice. So Paul moves from talking about how we are to relate to church leaders, how we are to relate to one another. But last, in verse 15, he addresses the believer's relationship to our enemies. To our enemies. He says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everybody. He says it negatively. He says, Look, you can't retaliate, you can't take revenge on something or someone that has done something to you. And he says, you know, we like loopholes, but there's no loophole. He says, no one, to no one, to anyone. You can't do this. You can't repay evil for evil. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord. Do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. Don't take matters into your own hands as the counsel. But what is the positive? He says, always pursue what is good. Don't take revenge. It's not eye for eye. It's grace for grace. 
Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good. I've read this story. I'm going to close with it. Some of you are familiar, and if you're not, then this will help maybe you get familiar with Corey Ten Boom and the story that she gave. If you remember Corey Ten Boom and her family in World War II were a Dutch family in Amsterdam, and they hid Jews in their apartment uh, as the Nazis were uh, advancing and searching out Jews, and they uh, hid uh, Jews in their walls, attic, you know, everywhere they could fit them in. And eventually the Nazis discovered their secret uh, rooms and compartments in the building they were living and put the entire family into a concentration camp. And Corey Ten Boom and her mother and father and sister all wound up in a concentration camp in, under the Nazis. And see, the tendency to seek revenge and eye for eye is our inability to forgive. It's easy to forgive people that you like. But sometimes it's harder, or even people to forgive where it wasn't quite that big a deal. You know, they brought you a taco when you ordered a burrito. Okay, I'll forgive them. The, wait, you know, the waitress. But when somebody has done something, and it's been a deep wound, and it's hard to forgive, I think her story here is helpful. It's not long, but she describes years later after she was survived the concentration camp, she was speaking uh, at a church service, and she shares this account of an unexpected encounter that she had with one of the Nazi guards in this church. Years later, this Nazi guard had abused them and all sorts of abuse that she writes about at the Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister Betsy died and she herself had been subjected to horrible indignities. And this is what Corey Ten Boom, you remember the movie, if you haven't seen it, The Hiding Place, still holds up and uh, I would encourage you to watch that. But Corey Ten Boom writes of this experience of being in this church service in Munich. And this is what she writes. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain humiliated face. The man came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, and said, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in that church and churches about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of those thoughts. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, Corey prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Corey says, I tried to smile. 
I struggled to raise my hand, and I couldn't do it. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or kindness. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I just prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. You see, we are not to take revenge. But the Bible says that we are God's church because we are different. And we respond not only to one another differently, but we even respond to our enemies differently. Jesus, I can't. Jesus, I won't. But Jesus, you will. And you can through me. Whatever you lack, guess what? Jesus has abundance. You need forgiveness? You need some forgiveness to forgive somebody? Tap into his grace. 